Welcome to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide for July, August and September 2013, titled Revival and Reformation. It's brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Lesson 7 for August 10 to 16, Unity, the Bond of Revival. Sabbath afternoon, August 10. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to you this week to begin our Sabbath school lesson, we just want to thank you for the knowledge that we have as we read your word. But more importantly, we want to thank you for the inspiration that comes through your Holy Spirit and the guidance that helps us in our everyday lives. As we study this lesson this week, we give ourselves to you and ask for your leading and guidance. In Jesus' name, amen. Our memory text for this week is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to have a walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's read that again, Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 3. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to have a walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity is an essential ingredient of revival. Conflict, division and strife do not create an environment for nurturing revival. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out on a church that had united in Christ's mission to the world. Their petty differences were subordinate to the call of Christ's larger mission. Striving for supremacy ceased in the light of Christ's commission to reach the lost with the gospel. If the early followers of Christ were busy vying for power, the work would have been stymied from the start. Instead, convicted by the Holy Spirit to die to self, they were united in purpose and mission. In short, where there is no unity, there can be no revival. Where jealousy, envy and jostling for supremacy reign, the Holy Spirit's power is withheld. How crucial, then, that we learn to break down the barriers that sometimes separate us so that we can enter into the unity that Christ seeks for his church. Sunday, August 11, Answering Christ's Prayer for Unity John chapter 17 contains Jesus' great intercessory prayer. It reveals what was on his mind at that momentous hour of earth's history. Question. Read John chapter 17, 9 to 11 and 20 to 24. What was Jesus' heartfelt longing? Why was this so important? How did the disciples' relationship to one another demonstrate genuine Christian faith? Also see Acts chapter 4, verses 32 and 33. Well, we begin 
with John chapter 17, verses 9 to 11. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. And then the same chapter, verses 20 to 24. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who you will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. And then in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 and 33. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. The oneness or unity of the disciples prepared their hearts for the reception of the fullness of the Holy Spirit's power. Christ's prayer for his church was fulfilled. They surrendered their differences, love prevailed, strife was banished. As we read in Acts 4:32 and 33, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. This passage links the disciples having one heart and one soul with their great power in witnessing. In the challenging circumstances of first century Jerusalem, at a time when Christianity was unpopular, these committed Christians shared their resources. They supported one another, they laid aside their personal ambitions, their unselfish attitudes and generosity of spirit prepared them to receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit's power for witnessing. Ellen White writes in Testimonies for the Church, Volume 8, page 20, Notice that it was after the disciples had come into perfect unity, when they were no longer striving for the highest place, that the Spirit was poured out. They were of one accord, all differences had been put away. So to finish today, why is the fulfilment of Jesus' prayer in John 17 so important for our church? What does Jesus' desire for the unity of the first century church reveal about his desire for our church today?
Monday, August 12, New Testament Illustrations of Unity The New Testament world of the first century was divided by caste, social status, and gender. It was a society in social turmoil. The concepts of equal rights, freedom, and human dignity were not the accepted norms. Then Christianity burst upon the scene. It created a social revolution. Jesus' teachings of equality, justice, concern for the poor, and respect for the marginalized appeared radical. At the same time, New Testament believers united around the core values of creation and redemption. They taught that all human beings were created by God and that redemption was made available to all people through the cross of Christ. The cross showed that each person, regardless of his or her worldly status, was of immense value in God's sight. Question. How do the following images illustrate the way in which different believers, regardless of their backgrounds, blend into the harmonious whole? First, we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 18. For as the body is one and has many members... But all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he pleased. And 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What images could be more powerful to illustrate unity in the church? The Apostle Paul uses the body to illustrate the church and its members. The body is closely knit, its members are interrelated and mutually dependent upon one another. All parts have their function. If one part of the body suffers, the entire body suffers. We read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 18 to 26. But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now, indeed, there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honourable, on these we bestow greater honour. And our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honour to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, 
but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honoured, all the members rejoice with it. Peter adds the illustration of a spiritual building with the members as stones, each fitting perfectly into the construction of a glorious temple that will glorify Jesus' name. In these illustrations, each member is intimately linked. It was this bond of loving unity in a world of fractured relationships, power struggles and divisive schisms that was to be a powerful argument for Christianity. Jesus stated his universal truth clearly in John thirteen thirty four and 35. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So to finish today, how well does your local church reflect the unity spoken about here? Ask yourself too, are you helping to bring unity? Or what attitudes might you be harbouring that could be adding to the problem? Tuesday, August 13, Elements of Unity, Our Mission and Message The unity experienced by the New Testament believers was based on far more than emotional warmth between members. Question. Read Acts 1, verse 8, 4, 33, 5, 42, 9, 31, and 28, 28 to 31. What was the all-consuming passion of the New Testament church? How did this passion unite them? Acts 1.8 But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Acts 4.33 And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Chapter 5, verse 42 And daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And Acts chapter 9, verses 31 Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. And finally, Acts 28, verses 28 through to 31. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house, and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ, with all confidence, no one forbidding him. The disciples were consumed with something much larger than themselves. Christ's commission to take the gospel to the entire world swallowed up their personal ambitions. The church cannot reach the community with the gospel until it is united, but it will never be united until it is consumed with the preaching of the gospel. Mission is a great unifying factor. 
The early believers rallied around mission. The life, death, resurrection, priestly ministry and return of our Lord bound them together. New converts were anchored in the apostles' doctrine, as it says in Acts 2. The teachings of Jesus provided the foundation for their unity. The Apostle Peter uses the term present truth in 2 Peter 1.12. The message of present truth in Peter's day united the church and propelled it forward with a prophetic impetus. Jesus Christ of Nazareth was the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. They were united with an urgent present truth message regarding the fulfillment of prophecy. Now, in the final days of earth's history, God has given his people an urgent present truth message as well. Revelation 14:6-12. It is the message of the everlasting gospel in the context of judgment of obedience and of the Lord's return. This is what unites Seventh-day Adventists as a worldwide family. If this message was watered down, given a secondary place, or treated as a relic of the past, the unity of the church would be fractured, and its mission would lose its urgency. If the church's message is either misunderstood or distorted, its mission will be unclear. It is the proclamation of the prophetic message of the three angels that gives Seventh-day Adventists the reason for our existence. So to finish today, how connected are you with our message and mission? Or look at it this way. Why are you a Seventh-day Adventist? Bring your answer to class on Sabbath. Wednesday, August 14. Church Organization, the Structure for Unity. The New Testament reveals that the early church had a definite organizational structure. The structure helped to preserve the doctrinal purity of the church and keep it focused on mission. In Acts 6, a small group of disciples met together to solve the problem of the distribution of food to the widows of the Greek converts. They selected deacons to solve the dilemma. Church members respected the authority of these church leaders. When the Apostle Paul was converted on the Damascus Road, he was directed to Ananias, a representative of the church. We read about that in Acts nine ten to 17 Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, 
The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you might receive your sight and be filled with this Holy Spirit. After Paul's baptism by Ananias, the Holy Spirit directed him to meet with the leaders of the church in Jerusalem in order to confirm his ministry. We read about that in Acts 9, verses 26 to 30. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, and disputed against the Hellenists. But they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea, and sent him out to Tarsus. In Acts chapter 20, Paul met with the church elders from Ephesus to urge them to be on guard against false teachers and their heresies. We read this in Acts 20, verse 17. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And then from verses 27 to 32, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up, and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Question. How did the New Testament church solve a major dispute over circumcision? Well, we need to read the whole of the chapter 15 of Acts, beginning at verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, You know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. 
Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogue every Sabbath. Then it pleased the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Basabas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, You must be circumcised and keep the law, to which we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So, when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. The Jerusalem Council saved the first century church from a serious schism. Church organization with administrative authority was essential in preserving the doctrinal integrity of the New Testament church. In this instance, local church representatives were sent to Jerusalem to participate in doctrinal discussions, which would have serious implications for the future of the church. Once this representative group came to a consensus, they wrote out their decision in a committee action and circulated it throughout the churches where the problem had originated. Antioch, Syria and Cilicia. Members accepted the decision of the Jerusalem Council 
and rejoiced that the Holy Spirit had guided them to an answer to their dilemma. So to finish today, if you are a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, then you are involved in the church structure. What is your role in that structure, and how might you be more constructively involved? Thursday, August 15, Achieving Unity The closer we come to Jesus, the closer we come to one another. We see with new spiritual eyesight. The Spirit of Christ enables us to view one another differently. The little things that once bothered us are reframed by the grace of Christ. Cherished hostilities are relinquished in the light of His magnificent grace. Old scores and disputes are, as much as possible, set aside. Barriers are broken down. The gospel heals broken relationships. When the Holy Spirit was poured out in its fullness on Pentecost, the attitudes of the disciples towards one another were dramatically changed. In the light streaming from the cross, they saw one another differently. As Ellen White writes in the Acts of the Apostles, page 48, Every Christian saw in his brother a revelation of divine love and benevolence. One interest prevailed. One subject of emulation swallowed up all others. The ambition of the believers was to reveal the likeness of Christ's character and to labor for the enlargement of his kingdom. Question. List some of the practices that fostered unity among first-century Christians. Why are these practices so powerful in bringing believers together? First of all, we go to Matthew 18, verses 16 to 20. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. And we continue on with... Acts chapter 1, verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication, with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his disciples. And chapter 12, verses 5 and 12. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. So, when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And Acts chapter 6, verse 7. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, 
All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Hoping or wishing for unity does not bring it about. The New Testament church prayed together and talked together. They studied God's word together, and together they shared their faith. Prayer, Bible study, and witnessing are powerful elements that create, foster, and sustain the unity of the church. As we pray for one another, we are drawn closer together. Participating in an evangelistic outreach to the community creates a sense of oneness or togetherness. A living, dynamic, unified and revived church is one whose members are praying together, studying God's word and reaching out to their community. So to finish the day, what are some of the forces at play that threaten the unity of your local church or even the church as a whole? Why is it important to understand what these forces are and to be ready to deal with them? Friday, August 16. From the book The Acts of the Apostles, page 20, we read, In these first disciples was presented marked diversity. They were to be the world's teachers, and they represented widely varied types of character. In order successfully to carry forward the work to which they had been called, these men, differing in natural characteristics and in habits of life, needed to come into unity of feeling, thought, and action. This unity it was Christ's object to secure. To this end, he sought to bring them into unity with himself. And that brings us to our four discussion questions for this week. 1. Why is a unified church structure so important for us? What would happen to our mission, to our message, and to our church as a whole if congregations, conferences, unions, or divisions were to go their own way? Imagine the chaos that would ensue. 2. In class, answer the question, Why am I a Seventh-day Adventist? 3. However important unity is for the Church, are there some things that are even more important? If so, what? For instance, in dealing with those who preached doctrines with which he disagreed, Paul wrote this, But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Galatians 1, 8 and 9. What happened to unity here, at least with these people? 4. Dwell more on the issue of how our message and mission are crucial to our whole identity as Seventh-day Adventists. After all, what would our purpose be without our message? which no one else is preaching to the world. At the same time, what other things unite us as Seventh-day Adventists? That is, though we would have nothing were it not for our mission and message, what else do we have that helps to define us, and why are these important as well? 5. 
Why is unity so crucial for any revival and reformation among us? That brings us to Inside Story, our mission story for this week. It comes from Namibia in Africa. The Disobedient Daughter Arunga stepped outside the mud hut that was her father's home. She had hoped that he would understand that becoming a Christian didn't mean she was rejecting her family's traditions. She loved her family, but now God was more important. Arunga is a Herero, a tribal people living in northern Namibia. She grew up watching her grandfather sit before the holy fire and talk to the ancestors, asking them to tell God the family's concerns. When she was ten years old, she went to live with her uncle and attend school in the little town nearest to her family's settlement. While studying, she attended a Protestant church and accepted Jesus as her saviour. She knew that her family would be unhappy, but when her grandfather accused her of deserting their culture, she was deeply hurt. They called her a disobedient daughter. Saddened, Aranga returned to town. A friend introduced her to some Seventh-day Adventist missionaries and their interpreter, Capitango. Aranga enjoyed talking with the missionaries, but she had no intention of becoming a Seventh-day Adventist. However, as her friendship with Capitango grew, so did her interest in his faith. In time, she accepted the Seventh-day Adventist faith, and the young couple decided to marry. But marriage in Arunga's culture is complicated, and parents often take years to decide to allow their young people to marry. Capitango's parents asked Arunga's parents for permission for the couple to marry, and they agreed. But... Just before the wedding, they withdrew their permission. Capitango and Aranga decided to marry anyway. Religion continues to be a wedge between Aranga and her family, who still refuse to listen to her testimony. But Aranga hopes that one day they will share her love for Jesus. She is her village's only contact with Seventh-day Adventists. Aranga and her pastor husband work with a group of Seventh-day Adventist missionaries to reach the Herero and Himba people of Namibia. They are developing Bible stories told in the oral traditions of her people. The stories, recorded onto MP3 players, are making a difference in people's lives, and Aranga hopes that one day soon they will reach her own family. Part of a recent 13th Sabbath offering has gone to help make these MP3 players available to more Himba and Hariro people so that they can hear for themselves that God is not distant or uncaring, but loving and forgiving. Thank you for giving to missions and the 13th Sabbath offering and making it possible for others to hear the story of salvation for themselves. This week's reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide has been brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Your reader has been Dr. Percy Harold. Remember, God is always faithful. Faithful.